gets one veto a year and he wanted to use this uh veto in new orleans one time we we're playing english turn the ninth hole it's par four i drove in the right rough and there's a lake between me and the and the green and i thought okay i'm just gonna take a little three and i'm just gonna just shoot a little skipper and it's gonna skip off the water and hop up the bank and onto the green and he goes hell no he goes you're laying this up you're gonna hit a nine iron out to the left you're you're going to hit a wedge up there close and make par i go i really think three's not out of the, out of play here if i double skip it it'll hit into the bank just perfectly and i was actually serious i mean i'm laughing now but i was kind of serious at the time i i thought i could do it so uh he said no no, no. and i had to go with it because it was i gave him his veto he used it in new orleans i hit a nine iron out there i wedged up to four feet i made par probably the right play Okay, golf fans, this is Alan Shipnuck, senior writer, Sports Illustrated. Thanks for tuning in to the first podcast of my new vertical, The Knockdown. This is quite an exciting venture for me. Over the last two decades, I've been focused almost exclusively on long-form magazine features, which we know is a dying art form. Uh, The Knockdown is really about going all in on, on the digital content. Uh, Certainly podcasts are going to be an important part of that, video vignettes, news stories from tournament sites, long form features that are going to be of magazine quality but written exclusively for the web, and all kinds of other goodies. So it's uh, it's an exciting time. I hope you guys will take this journey with me and uh, it can be an ongoing conversation whether it's through my weekly mailbag or through Twitter or other ways that we're going to reach out to the fans. So um, thanks thanks for being a part of this. Now to the business at hand, seated on my immediate left is Hall of Famer Phil Mickelson, who really needs no introduction, so we're going to dispense with one. Phil, thanks for being here. Happy to do it. It's fun to start the year. Just to set the scene for the listeners, we are here. It's Tuesday of Bob Hope Week. We're in La Quinta in your condo at the Madison Club, which seems like a pretty fun place to hang out. What kind of hang is this place? It's the best hang. It's the the best modern day golf experience, uh, from the food to to the pristine practice facilities to the golf course. It's uh, it's really a fun place to come uh, spend time. But this that's not really why I use it. I use it as a way to get out in a perfect weather here in the desert, and to go on the back of the range, work on my game, meet Andrew Getzen halfway from from Phoenix, and it, uh, it it works out well. But it also is a fun place to come spend a weekend. I understand you go to the men's grill sometimes in your robe. That's true. Yeah, I would throw on the old uh, Ryder Cup robe and, and go down and hopefully run into some some tour pros. Someone told me, in fact, that you used to like going to dinner parties in a certain green jacket. You'd show up in shorts and flip-flops and, and your master's jacket and be like, oh, I, I, thought this was a, I thought this was blazer required. I was cold. And... Uh, I, I love doing little things like that. I mean, I, I some people, um, a lot, most people get it. Most people think it's funny. Most people have a good sense of humor, but some people are sensitive to that stuff. And I just, you know, I just don't, uh, gravitate towards those, those people. But, uh, uh, most, most people get kind of my humor. Uh, but, uh, I think that stuff's funny. <laughs> it's clearly funny. <laughs> so, we have to address the fact that your, your off-season preparation has been compromised a little bit by the sports hernia surgery. I have a theory that the injury occurred at the Ryder Cup because your balls got so big and heavy 
they possibly created some sort of stretching or tearing. I'm not a doctor, but am I on the right track there? Well, it, it's uh, it was an umbilical hernia, so it was behind my belly button. What you're referring to is a little bit lower. I do appreciate that. I, it's probably one of the nicest things you've ever said to me over the years. I had this thing going on all year. It probably started a year ago in November or so, and I had it all year. And, and throughout the year, my belly button would stick out, and I'd push it back in a couple hundred times a day. It was just annoying. It didn't really affect me. It didn't bother my swing or anything, but when I would work out, it would just push through the muscle. The intestine would push through the muscle, and it was just annoying. I couldn't do a lot of the abdominal stuff, plank position and uh, prone holds, things like that, that uh, put pressure on it. So I got it fixed, and then I took seven weeks off. Doc said I could swing after four weeks, but I thought, I'm not going to push this. I'm going to be safe. I hit balls for one day, hit balls in the morning, played nine holes, wasn't hitting it great, went and hit a few more balls, and I felt a rip. And I, I could feel something stick out. It was about two inches higher. I went to the doc. We did a CT scan, and I had another hernia. And rather than wait, I just went right in for surgery again. So we're here at the Hope, and it's been exactly uh, one month to the day that I've had surgery. And uh, thing, things are, are going really well. I've had a great probably week and a half, two weeks now of decent workouts where I started very light, but now I'm getting back very close to the workouts I did normally. However, the off season is where I try to do a little extra. I try to really get my body in shape for the upcoming year, and I haven't had a chance to do that. So, uh, I, by being so, I don't want to say lazy, but not being able to do anything for, for a couple of months, I put on some weight and, and, and I'm now I've gotten half of it off and I'm working hard to, to get the rest off. Cause I just don't feel good, uh, anymore carrying that extra weight. I'm just haunted by the image of you pushing your belly button in over and over. Yeah, I did it all year. You just weren't paying attention or I just didn't play well enough to get on TV. Yeah, that's scary. I mean, the, the amazing thing about your career is that in a quarter century on tour, you've had almost no dings. I mean, to what do you attribute your your health and your longevity? I, I think there's two things that I attribute to uh, health and longevity. One is working with Sean Cochran in 2003 because he's not trying to get me to bulk up. What he's trying to do is get my body functioning sequentially in the right way. That's a That's been a big part of it. But the second is that my golf swing does not put a lot of pressure on my body. It's very leveraged-based where my body follows the club and I let the length of the arc create speed as opposed to trying to be short and violent and put that much torque on my knees, my back, my shoulders. And a lot of the young guys today have phenomenal golf swings and great talent, but they will and will they will get hurt and will continue to get hurt uh, under the, uh, the, the way that they're swinging currently. However, they're winning a lot of golf tournaments, but I don't think that they'll be able to, to withstand or have the longevity, uh, but they're certainly having the immediate su success. I know your diet has evolved a lot through the years. Are you still drinking those those green juices every morning? And what's that recipe? Uh, it's uh, it's kale and celery and cucumber and nothing that really tastes great. But I feel like on a cellular level, it's helping my body, and I need to do that. To when I got uh, uh, diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis in 2010. I needed to take accountability for my own health. So I went and I, I was, I'm very appreciative for the med medication that, that has um, allowed me to continue to play golf. But more than just taking Embril, I needed, I needed to be accountable in all areas of my life. And it changed my eating. I mean, it was my fault that, uh, that the psoriatic arthritis came through because I, would, I drank a lot of soda. I ate a lot of sugar. I ate 
uh, bad, bad foods, if you will. And I wasn't accountable and I ended up getting sick because of it. And it makes it, yeah, it makes me sick, but it's almost uh, as bad as that was. It was one of the better things that happened to me because from that point on, uh, I've been extremely accountable and I've had great success. And one of the good things that has happened to me, this has been so interesting. I went and got this food analysis by a doctor and he, and he said, cause I was getting sick six times a day, uh, six times a year. Sorry. And I said, why am I getting sick so much? He says, what are you taking in foods and so forth? And, and I was taking echinacea, which is an herb a lot of people take to help your immune system. I'd get sick immediately. I mean, it was awful. Well, he said, you are extremely toxic to echinacea. He says the last, the, the opposite of echinacea is coffee. And I've never been a coffee drinker. He says, you need to drink coffee and as much as you can. And as you can see right now, here we are at uh, six, six o'clock at night and I'm drinking coffee. I drink coffee all day long. I've not gotten sick one time in six years. So these little things are things that I've had to learn about that have really uh, changed my life for the better. Now, be honest, are you investing in, in Starbucks franchises? No, I, 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 <laughs> okay. I, I don't have any personal bias. It's just the great, it's been a great thing. And a lot of people probably are the opposite of me. A lot of people are probably really toxic to coffee and echinacea would help them. But it's not just any old coffee, right? Because when, when you do something, you go all the way. So tell me about your, your coffee here. Uh, well, we've got a setup there. So it's a, a very precise thing. There's a guy, Dave Phillips, who's a good friend of mine that started TPI, fascinating guy. In fact, he's the most interesting guy I've ever spent time with because he grew up since he was 14 years old pretty much on his own all throughout Africa, the Middle East, and in Europe. And he has so many different stories about so many things, but he learned a lot about coffee. And so he showed me how to do this fine press uh, coffee. So I get Ethiopian beans, which are my favorite uh, because they're smaller and more condensed with more flavor and more caffeine. Uh, and I grind them up, put them in, in this little container and uh, let it uh, kind of brew for three to five minutes, softly push the coffee down to the bottom. But once we get that done, I uh, pour it into a bucket. I put in the, the, uh, the bulletproof oil that is like an XCT oil because I'm a big believer in oil, and uh, so I put that in there. I take cinnamon, because it's an anti-inflammatory, and it tastes good, and I take uh, a couple of chips of dark chocolate that's like 80% uh, cacao. I throw that in there, and then I whip it all up, and uh, throw a little bit of almond milk in there, too. So I whip it all up, so it's so smooth and and tasty, but the oil also makes me full, so I don't eat as much food. So it has uh, helped me maintain a, a lower weight, although until the last few months. <laughs> and will you drink it on the course? Are, are you sipping this as you play? I put it in a Yeti, and I'll go uh, – That those Yetis stay hot for three or four hours, so I'll uh, carry it around for three or four hours. I won't do it on tour. I'll just drink it in the morning, but when I go play at home – uh, I practice in my yard a lot and go over to the course, the bridges, or Rancho Santa Fe, and I'll throw it in a Yeti and I'll have it for three or four hours uh, throughout the day. So when you're traveling the tour, you, you have your, your blender for your green juice, you have your whole coffee set up. I mean, this it's is... all right there. It's on display. You can see it <laughs> on the countertop. Absolutely. It's a big bag. It's a big bag of stuff, but I tend to dive all in when I go into something. When I kind of go down a route, I, I, I seem to go all the way. A little known bit of trivia is the first thing I ever wrote for Sports Illustrated as an intern in 1994 was about your ski accident. You broke, wasn't it the largest bone in the human body? I mean, people don't know how serious that was, right? 
Yeah, I snapped my femur in half uh, skiing. Not my greatest moment, but I don't remember the article. What did it say? Well, it was very complimentary about your skiing, <laughs> clearly. It, was, it wasn't even byline. In fact, I think Jaime Diaz got the byline. It was in an inside golf section. I was, I was just a lowly intern running around. But I still remember that. I mean, that was really your last significant injury. Yeah, that was. Uh, I was racing a buddy, and we got down. We had uh, just shot the mountain and got down to the bottom and I went to go turn to, to kind of cruise up to the lunch area because I was going down the very left edge of the tree line and I hit a patch of ice went right on my side and I cruised another 50-60 yards through the rest of the run and flew into the trees and I actually didn't hit a tree the ski pushed in between two trees and the pressure was so great that it snapped my femur right in half Yikes. And yeah that sucked did you still ski though yeah, I, I do. I, I didn't ski much this season. I only because I had just had surgery and I was two and a half weeks removed when we went. I skied for two hours just to just to get the get my feet wet. But I've been skiing since I was a little kid. My dad was a phenomenal skier. He grew up in Northern Cal in Chico, went to Chico State and grew up in a town called Chester and was captain of the Chico State Ski Club. It was so good. He he the, the town tried to sponsor him to go to the Olympics. Uh, and race but he got us started when we were four or five years old and I've been uh, uh, been doing it ever since and and been enjoyable and the good thing too about that was when I started when I was five I didn't know how to stop so the only way I could stop was to fall so I learned how to fall and get my feet up so it's very instinctive now when I fall to get my legs in the air and uh, not get my knees and stuff twisted so I've really not had any injuries from skiing knock on wood other than the uh, snap the femur in half. So like I say, when I go down a path, I go all in. <laughs> That's what we like about you, Phil. Uh, have you been on the slopes with any, any tour players? Yes, I have. And uh, Bernhard, Give me some sky reports. Well, Bernhard Longer is a phenomenal skier. So is Mark O'Meara. They're very good. Justin Leonard is stupendous. And Davis Love is an incredible snowboarder. And unfortunately, uh, I heard he might have gotten hurt this offseason, but uh, he is uh, he's a phenomenal snowboarder. Uh, but, but Justin Leonard, uh, we went up to Telluride and stayed at his place one time years ago, and I hadn't skied in a year. We get up there, he takes me right to the top, and, he, and we go right down a vertical, uh, double black, huge mogul deals, uh, moguls on this run, and he just started popping them. I mean, he just popped in and out, in and out. He looked like a professional. And I'm standing up there at the top, my first run of the year, thinking, <laughs> you know, how about a little cruiser? Let's get my legs going. And, uh, and, and he, I mean, I had, to, I had to hang. I'm a little competitive, so uh, I had to go for it. But uh, I, that was the one chance I probably could have gotten hurt but didn't. How about Justin's reinvention is like Grizzly Adams? I mean, this guy's like, he's almost living in a log cabin and living off the land, it seems like. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for him. I just really uh, have enjoyed our time. You know, we played college golf together. We've grown up together. We've played Ryder Cups together. We've spent a lot of time. And he and his wife, Amanda, are, are two people I like and respect the most uh, out on tour. They have uh, four wonderful kids. He, they're both great parents. I just have a lot of respect for them as, as people, and uh, they seem really happy where they're at. So since we're on, sort of on the topic of health and well-being, we need an update about bones. You know, I, talking to people around him, it seems like it's been a tough recovery from double knee replacement. How, how's your man doing? I, I'm really impressed with bones. We both had surgery on October 19th together, and he ended up having both knees done, which is very rare. Usually you do one at a time so that it's easier to recover, but he wanted to get them both done so he didn't have to do it again and he could get right back out on tour. And I thought... I just don't see how he's going to be able to do that. And the doc said, look, this isn't normal, but if 
if uh, you're going to do this, you have to go work and rehab with this guy. And I don't remember the guy's name. You've got to rehab with so-and-so. So he said, okay, I will. And he is, he's been playing golf since the middle of December. Are you kidding me? He's had uh, both knees replaced. He walks around uh, normal. He, he looks incredible. He's lost 10 or 15 pounds. He just looks great. This was our first day together, and, and I just uh, I can't believe. I know it was a lot of work in the offseason, but I can't believe where he's at today. That's so cute that you scheduled your surgeries for the same day. It, uh, yeah, kind of worked out that way. I mean, we like to do things in tandem, you know. <laughs> well, everyone knows you guys are like brothers and what a great guy he is and what a great caddy. But I don't care about that stuff. Tell me the time you were most pissed off at Bones. I don't, I mean, Bone, the thing about Bones and I is that we have a very good uh, communication. So we'll, we'll talk about things with each other. And there, there are times like anything where we'll have disagreements, but it's usually related to some of the, the dumb things I do on the course. That's the only time that he gets a little bit upset, and I get upset because uh, I just feel like I'm the player. I should have the, you know, the right to do it. But we really don't uh, have we've – ne- I don't know if we've ever had really a heated discussion. I mean, we, we've talked things through, and we just have good communication. So there's not one thing that stands out like that. I do know that uh, he throws this back in my face. I, used to, I give him a veto, veto every year because I'll do a number of uh, you know, dumb things. And every he gets one veto a year, and he wanted to use this uh, veto in New Orleans one time. We we're playing English turn the ninth hole. It's par four. I drove in the right rough, and there's a lake between me and the and the green. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to take a little three iron. I'm just going to just shoot a little skipper, and it's going to skip off the water and hop up the bank and onto the green. And he goes, hell no. <laughs> he goes, you're laying this up. You're going to hit a nine iron out to the left. You're you're going to hit a wedge up there close and make par. I go. I really think three's not out of the, out of play here. I think if I double skip it, it'll hit into the bank just perfectly. <laughs> and I was actually serious. I mean, I'm laughing now, but I was kind of serious at the time. I I thought I could do it. So uh, he said no, 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 and I had to go with it because it was. I gave him his veto. He used it in New Orleans. I hit a nine iron out there. I wedged up to four feet. I made par. And he throws that in my face all the time now because it was probably the right play. Yeah. Did you consider missing that putt on purpose just to spite him? I think that I had like this subconscious that wanted to do that, but I just couldn't get myself to do it. All right. Well, the natural follow-up is, so what is, what is the dumbest shot you've hit in competition? Well, it gets back to our veto. This is really dumb. I, I remember we were playing at Muirfield, not the year I won, but the, uh, in 2002. And we came to uh, the 13th hole, this par four, and I drove in the left bunker. And those bunkers, you really just have to wedge it out, you know. But I got down on my knees. The ball was up against the right edge. I got down on my knees, and I thought, gosh, I have a swing. If I get on my knees with a six iron, I think I can, I think I can do it. <laughs> so he says, hell no. Again, he goes, no, I'm using my veto. And I go, well, that's only good in the continental United States. So you don't get your veto. So I try to hit this six iron. And to make to, to make the long story short, I made about an 18-footer for double. Now, had I just wedged out, I would have made five. It wouldn't have been an issue. It would be no big deal. But uh, that was one of the dumb, dumbest shots I've, I've tried to play. So maybe at, at the WC in Mexico City, then, he's not going to be able to veto either. If it's just continental, you know, 48. I, yeah, 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 no. He doesn't get a veto in Mexico, no. I mean, you should build your whole schedule around that. Well, I, I like playing internationally now, but uh, 
I also like playing in state. So there's plenty of opportunities throughout our rounds to use a single veto. I mean, he's got to be really picky because you don't want to waste it early in the year. No. You know, you, you it's easy to do. Now, what about major championships? Would you overrule the veto even if it was, you know, I mean, how how sacrosanct is it? It it, it can you, you know, obviously Muirfield, you wiggled out of it, but Say when you're in the trees at Augusta National and the pine needles, and if, if Bones had vetoed you on that shot, would you, would you have respected that? Uh, well, no, that would have been a dumb play. That would have been a bad play mathematically to hit anything other than what I did because the gap that I had was on 2010 Masters on 13 was so small that had I hit a higher lofted club, there would have been a greater chance for Pine Needle to get in between the ball and the face and cause it to shoot a little bit left to right and hit the tree. So to hit the, the shot was much easier with a square, flat-faced club. Um, could I have just chipped it down there with a six iron? Possibly, but, uh, but the angle that I was hitting on was, and the way the fairway runs, it would have taken the ball right in the water. So the high percentage play, believe it or not, was actually the shot that I played. Not to mention when you talk about shot dispersion for a left-handed player and a right-handed player. You know that nobody hits the ball, a fade, a draw, and a straight shot the same distance, right? So if, you, if you're aimed at a pin and, and a left-handed player pulls it, it's going to go longer right. And if he pushes it, it's going to go shorter left. And that's how 13 green sits up. So I had a massive margin of error. If I push it a little bit or open up the face, it goes left, short, on the green, I have a 50-60 footer. If I hit it perfect, I'm 15 feet left of the hole. I pull it fractionally. I shouldn't admit this, but I pulled it fractionally, and I hit it three feet, four feet. Poor Bones. I can see how he never wins an argument with you. Uh, well, I mean, he uh, – I mean, we could <laughs> – <there, laughs> I have a few lines that I use, for, you know, for my family, but I'm, I, I, I probably won't share them here. I, I think this is the perfect forum, actually. You do? Yeah. Uh. I, I, no, I can't, I'm not even going to do it. Go ahead. Oh, you're such no, no, no. a, you're such I'm a tease. I just, uh, we have, we don't have argues, arguments, uh, so who, there's no winner or loser. We're, <laughs> we're partners. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, you know, when I think about the major championship, especially lately, it seems like you're bringing out the best in other players. Obviously, Heinrich, what, what Jordan Spieth did at Augusta in, in 15, you can go all the way back to Tiger and Beth Page. Why do guys enjoy beating you so much? <laughs> I'm a fun guy to beat. I really am. Because when, I, when you don't beat me, I, I really kind of stick it to you, you know? So I think guys really get a lot of enjoyment out of beating me. I know I, know I would. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I think that I have a very positive energy. Like a lot of things that I – the way I view life is so positive. I don't, I don't really – you know, have much negativity. I, I love my life all the way through from what I do for a living to my family, my kids, uh, the people I spend time with. I mean, the friends I have, I, every, everything. Look, I've had the same wife, caddy, and, and manager for my entire career because I have the best ones at all that. So I love, you know, every, everything about that. And uh, I just have a, a very uh, uh, positive outlook, and now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> We're talking about guys beating you. Yeah, and, and I guess I guess they they kind of feed off that positive energy. That's where I was kind of going with it. I think that uh, they they 
I, I, I'm uplifting, if you will. I don't try to stare them down. I don't try to be, you know, mean or gamesmanship or anything like that. I just, you know, I just have fun and play. And I think that, that uh, in that environment, it allows me to play my best when I'm talkative and smiling and having fun. And I think it does the same for others, too. Did you catch wind of Roy McIlroy's comments recently? He, he was talking about the PGA Championship at Valhalla, that he, he saw you and, and Ricky Fowler, you know, doing some high fives and egging each other on. And that got him kind of fired up and made him more determined to shove it down both of your throats. I, I love it. I mean, that you, you've got as a competitor, you've got to, to, to get that thing that turns it on, you know, whether it's us making birdies in front of them or high fiving or whatever, whatever you have to do to get that best out in you, to get you determined and focused. Uh, because uh, I, I, you know, we've all, we've always gotten along so well, and I really like uh, Rory. That uh, you know, but you have to find that in your opponent. You know, whether it's getting pissed off or whether it's it's just getting focused to uh, to go out and play your best. You've got to find something to to get you motivated when you're not at your best already. That that camaraderie you talk about is, is quite evident in your, your Tuesday practice rounds, which becomes sort of legend on tour. Uh, I, I know you like you like to take on the young guys, and you, you have rotating partners. What are some of your best practice round stories? I, I well, the more uh, smack is talked on Tuesdays in these games, and you could ever imagine, and it lingers. Okay, I mean, it lingers. It, you, it's not. We don't play for huge sums. I mean, uh, it, it, it's the same game, and it has been for years. We play two and one. You you have to win the eighteen hole game, and these started. I'll get back to the story in a minute, but it started back in two thousand six or seven when we kept losing the Ryder Cup. And what we were doing, we we would play these games that were Nassau's, that were hammer, where you would press. And if you didn't win the eighteen, you you didn't have to win the eighteen hole game, but if you had all the presses, you would win. But the Ryder Cup, there's no press. You have to win the eighteen hole game. So what we did was make an eighteen hole game where you. You will play for for two, and if you end up pressing, the press is for half. So the only way to win money is to win the eighteen hole game, and that has forced you, if you get three down or four down, not to press but to fight through it and try to come back. And that's that's where it started. So we had been playing. That my favorite story. This is my favorite story with uh, myself and Fowler are playing two really good guys, two of my favorite guys, Brennan Steele and Keegan Bradley, and we're playing the Players' Championship on Tuesday. Now, Keegan is about ready to bow out of these games because he's never won. It's been a year and a half, and he's paid every time, (laughs) and it gets demoralizing. So he's like, if I don't win today, I'm out. And this is the day. This is the day I'm going to win. And on seven, we're we're, uh, even or they're one up, and we get to seven, and he fats a wedge from the middle of the fairway, fats a wedge. It lands 20 yards short of the green, short of the bunker on the right, hits a sprinkler head, hops up over the bunker onto the green 15 feet from the hole, and he makes it, and he goes, see, this is the day. So now they're two up. Fast forward to the 12th green. And Fowler and I, uh, Ricky and Brendan have already finished, let's say, or they're out of the hole or made par, and Keegan and I have – uh, about a, a 16-footer and a 14-footer, and I'm away. And as I'm standing – now, they're two up. They're two up, and I, as I'm standing over this putt, I back away, and I say, oh, my goodness, this putt is the entire match. And Keegan bit. He goes, oh, yeah, how so? Which is what I was hoping he would say. And I said, well, if I miss, you're going to make your putt. You have momentum. You're going to make it, and you're going to uh, – 
be three up with six to go, and you, you guys are going to win. But if I make it, you're going to quick peel yours low side. <laughs> you're going to be so pissed off. You and Brendan are going to give us a hole. Next thing you know, we're going to be tied. Ricky and I will have the momentum. We're going to make a birdie or two coming in, probably beat you two and one. So <laughs> I knock it in. I knock it in. And what of either side that he could have missed it on, he missed it low side. He quick peeled it low side. Now they're so pissed off, they both bogey the next hole, and we, we get that hole. Now we're tied. So uh, Ricky and I birdie 15, 16, and 17 at 1, 2, and 1. And I just, I just chuckle about that story every time I hear it because it's just funny. <laughs> and I don't care about the money. I just, I just love being able to uh, – and I give him smack about this every time I see him. Now, there's a lot to give me smack about too. Believe me, they've uh, – Guys have, you know, pummeled me, and they, there's a lot to, you know, like I say, I'm a fun guy to beat, but that was one of my favorite stories. And was that the end of Keegan on Tuesday? He took a one-year sabbatical, yeah. He picked up his toys, and he went home and said, I'm not playing anymore. But he eventually came back. He pulled up his big boy panties and came back out, and, and he's had some success. He's won some matches, and it's uh, he's no longer, uh, you know, he's, he's no longer totally defeated. You know, he's, he's, he's won. Who else has been a human ATM for you on Tuesday? You know, nobody, there, there's no easy match. I mean, uh, I win as many as I lose. I mean, it's it's uh, there's no easy matches. but uh, And there's certainly no ATMs, even though I joke about it all the time. But uh, I, just have, I just have a lot of fun with it. It's just a fun, it's a fun way to, to hang and spend time. Are you in charge of the pairings? I mean, do you arrange the game? Yeah, I remember, you know, and the, the other thing, too, is you have to have quick pay, okay? So... Uh, I remember we were at the Ryder Cup in 14, and, and Ricky and I had beaten uh, Jimmy Walker. and I'm sorry, Jimmy Walker and Ricky had been beaten by myself and, uh, oh my goodness, I'm at a loss who my partner was. Who did I play with that week? A lot of guys. Uh, anyway, so we ended up winning. Oh, Keegan. Played with Keegan, of course. So Keegan and I win uh, the first day, and we win the second day. So I have four coming my way. And we're in Scotland, right? And there's no U.S. currency. And so I was like, look, well, I'll see you next year. You just get me next year. I'm not going to see him for months. Yeah. Great. So we get paired together at San Diego. Now, naturally, what are you going to do? The first thing you're going to do is square up. That's what you do. You walk over and say, here you go. We're on the tee on Thursday. Here you go. I haven't seen you in a while. Here's money I've owned you for four months. Here you go. That's the classy move. Didn't happen. Okay, so it didn't happen Thursday. So I felt the need to drop a line. I said, hey, uh, you know, tomorrow when you show up on the tee box, why don't you stop at the bank tonight and uh, square up? Let's square up because it's, you know, been four months. And what is Jim? Did you text Jimmy that? or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw him that day. I, I, I played with him. I go, hey, dude, uh, you know, tomorrow, why don't you, after the round, go to the bank. We'll square up in the morning. And he didn't do it. He didn't square up. So... Now we go into another week or two. So that warranted a one-match suspension, okay? Because and w when we're at Doral, he and Snedeker were talking smack. Oh, yeah, we're going to play at the Masters, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's great. Brant, I would love to play with you. Now you're going to have to get another partner because Jimmy is suspended a match, okay? <laughs> and he can partake afterwards. And he thought that I was kidding. I wasn't kidding, Uh you know, the commissioner has to has to draw the line somewhere, right? So uh, he had a one-match suspension, which, I again, I chuckle at. It's just 
uh, fun. So you get to you get to kind of make the rules. Yeah, that's just too good. So clearly, this kind of team building is is going to make you a natural Ryder Cup captain. And I don't know if you got the email from Pete Bavakwa today, but I've been put in charge of the task force as effective immediately. So. I am now allowing you to choose which year you want to be Ryder Cup captain. What, which do you select? Well, the, the, first of all, the task force was disbanded, and now it's a committee. Okay, we're on a committee. Are you saying that you're the head of the committee? I must, I must, yeah, I must have misread the email. I was driving over here. It was, you know, I glanced at it. But the point is... No, no, I don't understand. You're the head of the committee now? You could call me that, sure. I could see that. I could see where your insight and savvy could be very beneficial, yeah. I really don't understand why you didn't bring a couple media members onto the task force because we have all the answers. That's been clear for a long time. I think so. I just wish you would ask the right questions. <laughs> That's too much pressure. It's better a couple days later when you've had time to reflect on it and you can take some shots from afar. That's yeah, of... I get that. I think what's frustrating for me is that when I try to uh, to help with insight because not, obviously none of the guys in the media are – on the team or inside the team room or playing. And, and we, when we get in those situations and you, when I try to like give insight as to like what's going on, like, yeah, obviously we need to play better. Okay. But why, you know, why, what, 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 what is not allowing us to play our best? We play our best in the president's got, what, what is it? So when you, when I've tried to like give it inside, look into what we need to do differently to allow us to play better or to allow us to do the same things as the president's cover, whatever, uh, instead of taking it as insightful knowledge or, or, oh, I didn't think of that, it's taken as how can we create controversy? And that's the thing that's disappointing for me because it affects the way uh, I interact now with a lot of members of the media because uh, I view them as, as wanting to create controversy rather than actually being curious and wanting to convey that knowledge to, to the, the viewer. Well, I, I thought that, you know, what happened at the end of Tom Watson's press conference was needed. And I think I celebrated as such. And surely you, you've gotten a lot of validation after this last two year buildup, the changes that were made. I mean, you were right. So does, that must feel good. I'm not. I'm not going to go there. I'm just really happy with where we're at, and we had this. This last Ryder Cup has meant so much to me because, obviously, I had a lot of pressure on me. But that's not what was important. What was important that we have a real game plan for success, and not just a a uh, random uh, hope this works this time. And this, you know, Davis did such a great job in putting us in a in an environment that allowed us to play our best. You know, little details. Like what are you talking about? Here 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 we go. Okay, well, we had a team that drove the ball a long ways. You know, we had Dustin Johnson and JB Holmes and Jimmy Walker and Ricky Fowler, and a lot of guys that drove the ball a long ways. Why would you put rough and tight in the fairways when you have a, guy, a, a group of guys that drives the ball a long ways? We had so we didn't. We didn't have much rough. We had really great putters from Snedeker and Zach Johnson. Uh, to myself last year was high up in the stats. To uh, everybody on the team was high up on the stats. We're really great putters. So why would we tuck pins when we can get on the green and have a reasonable look at it? So the pins weren't tucked to a, a few areas. So you had more area around the pin to give yourself a decent look at, the, at, at it. Well, that just makes sense. Okay, this is where Tiger was stupendous. Tiger did such a great job. He said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. When the shorter guys play, we're going to move the tees back on the par fives because we're better wedge players. Statistically, 
than our opponent. So we're going to move the tee back so nobody gets there in two. We all play wedges. We're going to win a couple of these par five holes because of it. And we did. And when the tees, when, when our longer guys are playing, we're going to move the tees up because then our longer guys can, can get there, can reach. And you watch Snedeker and Zach Johnson, Patrick Reed hitting wedge shots close. It, we, put, we put ourselves in a position to succeed. We gave our, ourselves the opportunity to play to our strength rather than handcuffing us the, in, the entire time or, or uh, not really having a game plan to, to, to play our best. So the fact that, we're, that Davis led the team so well and that we had great input from Tiger to see him excited and Steve Stricker and Jim Furyk. Jim Furyk's now the next Ryder Cup captain and Davis is an assistant. Well, how great is that for Jim to have somebody to bounce ideas off of? How much sense does that make? It makes a ton of sense. We never had that. In fact, in my 20 years, we have had one vice captain become a captain. So now we have guys that are vice captains learning the, what's going on and what needs to be done and, and how things uh, work the best, what doesn't work well, and able to adjust uh, because they're in that position. And, and so we're now putting our captains and our vice captains in a position to succeed. So my big thing in life is putting people in a position to succeed. Don't set them up to failure. And one of the, I'll give you a perfect example. Don't go up to somebody and say, hey, remember me? What an awful thing to do. You're putting that person in a position to fail. <laughs> okay? What you should do is say, hey, Alan, I'm Phil. We last met at such and such event. I just, it's great to see you again. I just want to make sure I said hello. Well, now you've put that person in a position to succeed. Oh, yeah, I remember you, of course. You know, we had this and we had, we had that glass of wine. It was great. Well, that, so that's, that's my big thing in life is, is giving, putting people in a position to succeed. And, and that's what uh, Davis did. That's what the PGA of America is now doing for our future captains. And it's, uh, it's a, something I'm excited about because I think we're going to have a phenomenal 20-year run. I, I totally agree. And you, you look at the, the youth on this U.S. side – I mean, the guys that even make this team, like Justin Thomas and others, it's it's impressive. I, I mean, I think the, the balance of power shifted very quickly. I think that this was a good start, a really good start year. And I think we've never won in the 20-plus years I've played the Ryder Cup. I, over in Europe, I would love nothing more to go to Paris and and win a Ryder Cup, and and that's a big goal of mine to be on. The, make sure that I'm uh, on the on the team in two years. Tell me more about, about Tiger's presence in this Ryder Cup because it seems like he was kind of a revelation for guys who, even like you who've known him his whole career and saw a little different side of him. Yeah, he's really fun to be around now and, and has, is very thoughtful and, and detail-oriented. Uh, but more than that, he's been very uh, approachable and helpful with a lot of the guys. And I think for a number of years uh, – he felt, I don't know this, but I think he felt as if he were to open up in these team events, he would be breaking down that aura that he's built and the intimidation that he's built and could affect his career uh, in, in some of these tournaments by that one week. And so has always been kind of held back or reluctant. But uh, I think after winning 79 times and 14 majors, you have a pretty high self-esteem and, and confidence in your ability. And I feel as though he's. it, it seems like he's able to uh, – open up and accept the fact that he's, you know, one of the greatest, one of the two greatest of all time and that I, I can, I can help these guys and let's, uh, let's do this together. I, I, I don't know if, what it is, but the last probably three or four years, he's been uh, much more approachable and engaging, engaging with the guys and really fun to be around. And guys, you know, guys grew up on the team. 
idolizing him and watching him and to have him uh, support you and talk to you and be with you has been really uh, fulfilling. And your personal relationship with Tiger, has that improved and gotten cozier? We we get along really well. I, I've always thought we've gotten along okay, you know, fine, but we really have uh, been brought together. This whole process actually has been uh, very good for us because we've worked uh, closely together on thoughts, ideas, and uh, on, on how best to set up the, the game plan going forward. We've uh, really worked well together, and I think that uh, that's been fun for both of us. Will he win again on tour? Oh, yeah. He's too good not to, uh, unless physically he something holds him back. But uh, he used to win with ball striking. He would just out ball strike guys, and he would win tournaments doing that, even not putting that great. He would win tournaments out putting everybody, even if he didn't strike it that great, because he was such a great putter and great short game. But when he did them both together, he just spanked everybody and won by 15 like the 2000 U.S. Open. You, He can win with uh, – he doesn't have to be at his best, the best he's ever been at to win golf tournaments because his talent level is so high, and I think it's much easier to do it again or to play at that level again than it is to do it for the first time. So when he does come back, I think he'll be able to find a way to win and be successful, even if he's physically not able to swing the club uh, the way he used to. He'll find a way to – hit the shots he needs to hit, and, and shoot the lowest score. All right, bear with me on this question. So let's say Tiger physically can't do it anymore. So he had you know a great run, obviously, from 97 to 09. We'll give him 2012 and 13. Had 14 epic years. You're, you're going at 25-plus now of being relevant and contending and being healthy, and you're still going strong. Would you trade your career for his? Well... He's the greatest of all time, okay? But the thing about this is that I need golf. Golf is therapeutic for me. It's a reprieve. It's a way for me to focus my, my mind on something positive, to have a goal that, that there's never a finish line, keeps me working uh, on, on something very positive. I have a, a, a mind that kind of dives into things all in that we talk about. And I think it's a very positive thing, but it can be a negative thing. I've never tried a, a recreational drug in my life because I am scared out of my mind that if I were to ever try something like that, I could easily get dive right down that path and, and be all in on that. And, and so con, conversely, or consequently, I've never uh, tried, the, tried a drug because I'm so afraid of what it would do to me because I, I dive in uh, to those things. And the uh, I, I needed to dive into something positive, you know, and golf has been so therapeutic for me that if I had it taken away from me in my mid forties, even if it's not, even if I can't play competitively at the highest level, being able to play golf and play with my friends and get on the course and and have that challenge or have a a, a club, a local event, something to to work for, uh, is something that I need for me to uh, to function. So Tiger has a handful of tournaments that are his own. When are you going to get your own tour event? Uh, I won't. I, I won't because uh, Byron Nelson has, has his event. Uh, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, they have their events. Tiger has their event. I don't view myself like that. I'm, I don't put myself in that league. And I feel like uh, 
it would be kind of an ego play to do that. Now, I'm an ambassador at the at the Career Builder Challenge. I'm an ambassador because I, I brought a lot of my sponsors in to get involved here. I know a lot of people in this area that we've kind of you uh, leverage relationships to get them involved to make this a the uh, the tournament that it once was, if you will, where where people right now or in the past have been leaving Palm Springs when the tournament comes to town because they want to get out because it's too busy. I want them to come back, be here, and partake in the festivities. Part come come to the tournament, have a concert, watch the golf, interact with the players, and uh, and make it the place to be rather than the time to get out of town. What would it take for you to feel worthy of your own PGA Tour event? Uh, I, I just don't I just don't see myself like that. So I don't I don't see that happening. On the business of the tour, there's obviously been a change of commissioners. And a couple of years ago, when I was doing a Tim Fincham story, I came to you and said, you know, if I could, if you'd comment, and you said, well, I promised my wife I wouldn't create any controversy this year. Uh, the year's over. So what was your issue with Fincham? Uh, I really didn't. Uh, when I look back on it, any issue I had with Fincham, I was in the wrong. When I look back on what he's done when he took over as commissioner in '94, he's had steady growth for the tour. When I first won my uh, tour event, I was an amateur in 1991. I won the Tucson Open, and the purse was a million dollars. First place checks, 180,000. I remember thinking, as these guys in football, baseball, basketball were making millions, I was thinking one day. We'll pro- we might have a million dollar first place check, but it probably won't happen in my career. And and but just hopefully one day we will. And we're playing for one to two million dollars first place check every single week. And we had this steady growth even when we had a downturn in the market and the, and the the Nasdaq collapse in '99 or what have you or the 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 uh, the issue in 2007 and eight with housing and all these things. Fincham has had us on a steady path of growth and has brought us to a, a really successful place. And any, as I look back on it, any time I had certain thoughts or what have you, uh, he, he was in the right. He, he did the right thing. That's a really interesting observation. You, you have no scores to settle with the guy who was your boss no. for 20 years. Uh-uh. I have nothing but the utmost respect for him. I mean, uh, He has a very difficult. The commissioner has a very difficult part to play because he has to accommodate the sponsors. Okay, he has to represent the sponsors. He has to represent television. He has to represent the players. And inside the players alone, we have totally different views on things. We have opposite views on a lot of things, which makes it very difficult to represent the players' views. Uh, Half the tour views the the tour as, as a way to. Pre, that it's our job as a PGA Tour to present the best product to the public and get the best players to play these events so that we create this interest in the public. And uh, the other half of the tour views the tour's job as creating job opportunities and playing opportunities for players. And that's a very uh, different way to, to look at the tour. And as commissioner, how do you represent that the best? Well, he's done a pretty darn good job. I despise conflicting events okay i don't think they're right because i think they detract from the product that we're presenting however it really doesn't detract from the product we're presenting but what it does is give opportunities for more players to get out and and play and i think i was wrong on that i mean i i still feel the way i feel but if i look at it logically i think he's right that we need those opportunities for to play especially the way 
the tour is set up with the qualifying school where these guys come out and get their card from qualifying school, if you will, and they don't have a fair chance because they're not given enough starts. They can't make their own schedule. They get in 18, 20 events, and they're not the ones that they want to play, and it's it's whenever you get in, you got to go play, so it's hard to keep your game sharp year-round. Much easier when you can make your own schedule. So th- those guys need those playing opportunities. Interesting. On, on the subject of your somewhat frequent media controversies, you know, I was walking with Amy at, at the Ryder Cup, and she said, it's just like we're on this roller coaster constantly, and sometimes I wish I could get off. And Now, I know that the SEC stuff is ongoing, and you're not at liberty to really speak about it freely, but my question for you is, how do you explain these things to your kids? Or are they even tuned in to you know, dads making headlines? Oh, yeah, I tell them exactly what happened. They know, they know everything, of course. Um, but that's not again. That's not something that uh, that I can talk about. But the stuff that's it will come out. Like it, it will. It is coming out, and it will continue to come out on what actually happened. And uh, uh, I, 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 anyway, I can't really go much in, further into that. But uh, it, it is stuff is slowly coming out on on what actually happened. But even beyond that one particular issue. So when you say something, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, dumb. And it creates a little brush fire in the golf press. Do you have to go to your kids and say, don't go on the internet for a day or two? You know, everyone's mad at your dad. No, 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 no. Uh, no, you got to take the good with the bad. Yeah. You know, that's uh, my, my uh, life has always been kind of a bit of a firestorm, you know, whether it's on the course, off the course. I, you know, I'm uh, kind of a hot lightning rod where everything I do well is like, whoa, way overblown. Like this, you know, what a what an amazing this. It's not that amazing. And then all the things I do bad are, oh my goodness, how could he? So it's just a lightning rod. It's not uh, uh, very steady, and and I accept it, and and I think so do so do my kids. Yeah, I, you and Amy had very you know, normal middle-class upbringings, and obviously your kids are growing up in, in, with great privilege. How do you try and give them a, a somewhat normal life? Uh, certainly that's a challenge and has been a concern, but Amy's done such a such a great job that I'm very proud of the way they view things and the way they uh, view others and treat others and, and look at the world uh, as a whole. So, uh, I, I mean, obviously that's I, I've got to attribute it uh, that to Amy and, and the, you know, the raising them that way and so forth. But, uh, I, I grew up, uh, in an awesome family. My parents are just, uh, terrific. And I had this great childhood, but we didn't have, you know, every opportunities weren't spoon fed. They weren't handed to us, but we had every opportunity we needed. So when I was eight, I wanted to play golf and we couldn't afford a, a country club. So I ended up going down to the local municipal course and I got a job there, and it was a huge risk that those guys at the club, at uh, it was Navajo Canyon at the time, it's now Mission Trails, they took a huge risk, and it, and it was hard to convince them to let an 8-year-old go out and pick range balls for <laughs> three nights a week and go pick trash out of the parking lot just for playing privileges because they're liable. I didn't even think, I didn't know about this stuff, but they would have been held liable if something happened, and it was a big risk that they took. And had they not taken that risk, had I not had that opportunity to play golf every day, my parents would drop me off at the course, I'd hit balls, I'd go pick up the range when, when it was time to, or I'd go play and practice when it wasn't. I was there all the time, and if I didn't have that opportunity, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be playing golf, which is why I, the courses that we own in Phoenix, you know, we try to accommodate all the high schools and all the kids that want to play and encourage them to come on out and, and uh, 
make it as affordable and as accessible as possible because we all need those opportunities and we all uh, we all aren't always going to be able to afford them. One of the things I like most about your Hall of Fame induction speech was when you were talking about Amy and how you had no game and she was clear out of your league, which we can all agree with. You once imparted some some funny advice to me on on how to woo a beautiful woman. Do you remember this conversation that we had? It's about fear. And- well, yeah. So I think this could be very valuable to the oh. listeners. What what is your advice for you know punching above your weight when it comes to to females? Well, I, it's uh, the one thing as a psychology major that I learned, and I. I've shared this with my kids, so I'll make it, I'll, I'll, I'll share it, is that the physiological response of the human body for fear is the same as it is for arousal. So when you're afraid, your heart pumps faster, and your lungs expand, and your nostrils flare, and your senses become much more acute. And that's um, what happens when you're aroused, you know? So what I would do is I would, uh, I had to, I would take Amy or, you know, to a suspenseful movie, not a horror movie, but a suspenseful movie. And during this suspenseful time, I would grab their hand and I would kind of rub it, you know, during this. <laughs> and she would displace her fear as arousal or attraction for me. And that's how I was able to, you know, when, when I didn't have as much to work with, was able to, uh, to land such a gem. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound so romantic when you put it in those terms, but clearly it was effective. Yeah, so so I say I have no game, but I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you know, the cancer scare that, you, that Amy went through changed you guys as a couple and, and you as a person. As, as now there's some distance from that. How, how do you think that, that made your relationship evolve? I think when you go through something as difficult as that was and as long as it took to really get back to where we wanted to be, um, you end up, uh, going through a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And when you're going through it, you don't see the progress you're making, but you see it when you got, when you get back. And I look at Amy now and she's just, we laugh and giggle. We go on these trips and we just laugh and giggle more than we ever have. And, uh, we have so much fun now, and it's just, uh, I mean, we always have, but we, we're just kind of back to, to ourselves, and you don't see it as you're in it. You know, when you're in it, it's, uh, it's a lot of tough things, and somebody gave us some great advice. She said, this lady said, when you're going through a tough time like this, she said, don't fight, fight the current and swim, try to swim back against the current. Lay on your back, float, float down, down the shoreline, and then swim back in when, when the current you know, is weaker. And I, I felt like we kind of applied that and that we just kind of went through these moments in life and we didn't really like try to fight it too hard. We just endured it and we got through it. And now we're back and able to swim back to the shore. Now we're back on shore and, and doing well and having fun. I like that metaphor. Uh, you guys go on a lot of trips. It's a very far flung family. What, what are some of the adventures you've had? We've, we've, uh, yeah, we've had a lot of fun. I, I don't even know where to start on that, but we've had a lot of fun together. But I, uh, our most recent, tri- like our family trips to Montana are the best because when you get your kids on a, on a chairlift, there's no place to go. You have 10, 12, 15 minutes, whatever to, to talk and you get to really find out what's going on in a fun environment. So they're during school days, they're tired. They're up early. They're working all day at school. They have tests, they have homework, they have 
athletics. But when you're on a chairlift, you know, we're having fun. They have energy. And they're much more talkative, and you really find out what's going on. So those are my favorite trips, those trips to Montana. But uh, we've been fortunate to have a lot of fun trips together. We've laughed and giggled. I mean, one of the ironies of being a tour pro is just when you get your kids leave the house and you can travel guilt-free, that's right when your career is winding down. But can you see a point you know, as your kids go off to college that – you're gonna, you're, it's gonna increase your desire to play the tour in, instead of slowing down. It, it's possible in that we would end up being able to travel together just like we did when we were kids, and uh, able to just be us, and how easy it is, and not be having babies and strollers and uh, high chairs and food and all the uh, the stuff you have to car seats and stro- all the stuff you you travel with and. Uh, now they can't travel because they can't miss miss out on their life. They've developed a life of their own, and they can't miss, so they can't travel. And it would be fun for us to be able to be together, uh, be together out on out, out on tour or wherever. We we might just uh, travel the world too. There's some places we we've been really wanting to spend like six months a year and and go to different places. Like actually live overseas. Yeah, different parts of the world that we've traveled to. Uh, there's an island in the Greek island, Hydra, I want to go to. There's some places down in South America I want to spend. I'd love to rent a place for like six months and live there and uh, just kind of see different parts of the world. Now I can see why you're not into the Champions Tour. That sounds like a lot more fun. Well, it is, but Champions Tour is fun too. I get to see a lot of the guys that I grew up with uh, playing and, and spend time with them and travel with just Amy and I and it's it, th- that sounds interesting too, but it's I don't know if if I need kind of that challenge. I need a challenge, and playing against anything less than the best in the world uh, might not pose a, a great enough challenge for me to really f- be focused on uh, being my best and and playing well. Okay, before we let you go, we had uh, John Wood was a, a guest on our on our Golf dot com tour confidential. I love Woody. Yeah, he's great. He's the best, and he described you as one of the, the five liberal politically guys on tour. So I have to ask you, what are your feelings around the precipice of this new administration? What, what's your take on Trump? Have you played golf with him? Do you have any insight into, into him as a golfer and, a, and as a person? Uh, I've, uh, I've have spent some time with him, and uh, he's surprisingly uh, a much better golfer than you'd think because he hits the ball a long ways. He has club head speed, and there's no substitute uh, for club head speed. And uh, so he is, he is a, a pretty good a pretty good golfer. I remember uh, back in college, when I was in college, I was a freshman or sophomore, and he had he was uh, involved with this uh, All-American banquet, and we had to go to this banquet, and Marla Maples, he was with at the time, was, was speaking, and she was presenting me an award, and I went up and, and got an award, and uh, she went to kiss me on my cheek. You know, I kind of turned, like, kiss me on my cheek, and as she kissed me on my cheek, I kind of turned, and and got a little smooch on the lips, and uh, I think, and he was in it. He was in the crowd, and I think he got a kick out of that. And ever since then, we've we've uh, kind of laughed about things. <laughs> so you both have a little rascal in you, apparently. You and the president. I don't know if he does. I know I do. Yeah, yeah. Amy, you know, it's it's a. a she always has to kind of manage that because I think you want a little bit of spice in life. You definitely want some spice, but. Uh, too much spice is, can be unpalatable. <laughs> okay, well, I, I think that's the perfect ender. Phil, thank you for your time. Um, and speaking of spice, I'm going to work on that coffee recipe. I, I think that could be, you know, life-changing. It has been for me. 
Uh, Phil, you've set a very high bar here for a podcast guest, but hopefully we can come at least close in future uh, editions. Again, please check out all of our offerings at The Knockdown, which you can you can access at golf.com slash shipnuck. And look forward to uh, hearing from all of you and uh, soliciting ideas and feedback and even put-downs are welcome. So that's it. Signing off from La Quinta, California.